Turn to John chapter 19. One of the things that we have uh, <clears throat> done last, uh, as long as I can remember, um, is try to engage not only the season of Lent, but uh, specifically Holy Week. We have a lot of details about uh, what Jesus did and said that last week. Um, so beginning with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, uh, as Ashley read uh, at the beginning <clears throat> that would be today. And we know what, what he did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and certainly Thursday and Friday. Saturday is a bit of a mystery. Sunday, definitely. Uh, and so we try to, as best we can, as his disciples, step into maybe in real time. So really from this Sunday till the next Sunday, we're going to be sending out and trying to communicate, hey, here's what Jesus did on Monday. Here's what his disciples did. Here's what he and his disciples did on Tuesday. And so I hope that you'll track along with us in that regard uh, because it, it really helps to kind of embody th some things a little differently. And so he rode into uh, Jerusalem on, on the donkey. It was this big political rally, basically, not by his doing. That was the people's response. They thought that he was going to be the political military leader who would uh, overthrow Roman oppression and lead Israel to greatness again and um, so he rode into town on a donkey and they made the big, the big fuss and they were singing, saying Hosanna and they were saying it from a military political perspective, but he knew the real Hosanna cries that they didn't really understand. He was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be a different kind of, uh, responder than they think. And so Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, he was kind of explaining that in different, different cases around the, in the temple and things like that. But Jerusalem was packed because it was Passover. And so on Thursday night, he gathered with his disciples for the Passover meal. And so this Thursday, as his disciples, we will gather as well. And I hope, uh, you know, we've, been, we've had the Holy Week schedule out there for a long time. So I hope that you have the Thursday night service on your schedule uh, and that you are going to be able to be here, I, I hope. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to gather because they gathered and we're going to do what they did. We'll, there will be the Lord's Supper. There will be a focus on uh, his teaching in that night, not only about the Lord's Supper, but also uh, the new commandment that he has given to them. And so that was the night when he said, uh, I'm going to give you a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. And that's really what will center the night around on Thursday. And so from that, from that upper room, they then went to, uh, on Thursday night, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed. Uh, very powerful time of prayer, very disappointing experience with the disciples. You might be familiar with it. Around midnight, he was betrayed and arrested. He, um, around sunrise, they put him on trial. They found him guilty and sentenced him to death by crucifixion. 8 a.m., they began to torture him. 9 a.m., they crucified him. Um, and on Friday, specifically, at those different times, we're going to post things on social media, and we'll, we'll send out kind of an email schedule as well. 
there's something powerful about on Good Friday around nine to think about, yeah, this is like when he was crucified. And then at, at noon, some other things happen, and you're thinking, man, he's been hanging there for three hours. You know? When you step into the real-time part of it, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And so what we're going to do is we're going to gather Friday night uh, around the time when he would have died. And they would have taken him down, and we'll meet in here. And it will not be the most joyful service you've ever been to. Uh, it's dark and sad, and it needs to be dark and sad. And certainly in our culture, Good Friday has become a, a holiday, right? Day off of work, and people boil crawfish, and they do all this kind of stuff. I feel like for the people of God, we should have a... Not that we can't take off of work and boil crawfish or anything, but I feel like there should be a seriousness, though, about that day to us. And so we will have a very serious time in here. And one of the things for that that we do, like the service is at 7. Uh, it's like a half hour. It's not super long. Um, not a lot of light in the room. We'll let the sun go down. It gets darker, that kind of thing. But starting at 5.30, this room will be open uh, for you. If you want to come early for the service and kind of prepare your heart, we have some, uh, some readings and some like, things to think about based on the Stations of the Cross. Uh, and sometimes it's just uh, for a lot of people who will come early and just you spend 30, 45 minutes preparing for the service in a sense. And we'll give you some things to read and that kind of stuff. So I just want you to know that it starts at 7, but you can come before that and just be in a quiet room. Um, so on Friday, we'll do what the disciples probably did, which was mourn and grieve and uh, probably not have a lot to say, honestly. Um, so I hope you'll be here for that. <laughs> it's a hard sell, but uh, it's good. It's deep. It's, it's hard, but... Saturday, we're not going to do anything. We don't know what they did on Saturday other than probably uh, hid from persecution and probably cried a lot, you know, because they had just watched their rabbi get killed. Then Sunday morning, we'll do what they probably did, which is celebrate the fact that Jesus, uh, that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And so that'll be fantastic. And there's something about the darkness of Good Friday. Like, it's almost like the darker Good Friday is, the more, the more light there is on Sunday. It's, it's, it's a, just quite the contrast. And so this next week is a pretty important week for, for followers of Jesus all around the world, for all of us as his disciples. Um, and so on Sunday mornings, if you've been here the last, you know, through Lent, I've been looking at the fact that when, at 9 a.m. when they crucified Jesus and he was hanging there until around 6 p.m., uh, during that time, he had some things to say. As he was suffering, um, looking at each of those statements, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That was the first thing he said. Praying for the forgiveness of you and me and those crucifying him and every, everyone. Then the father answered that prayer because one of the criminals crucified next to him expressed faith that Jesus is telling the truth about who he is. And so he, the second thing he says is, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Um, then seeing his mother in front of him and he as a firstborn need to entrust care of his mom to someone so he entrusts care of his mom to his best friend and disciple John uh, so he says woman behold this is your son now and John behold this is your mother now and he creates this whole new family uh, in a really beautiful way that, for, that forecasts what uh, what he's doing in terms of like the creation of the church. Um, 
Then it gets heavier. He quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is about, it's a lament that says, uh, I am being unjustly persecuted and I feel forsaken by God, but, but I know that I am not. And so he quotes the first line of this psalm, which is a Jewish way of referencing the whole psalm, almost as if in the moment he's coaching himself through a moment and maybe he's de- like coaching the witnesses and maybe he's even telling the Lord, I know this looks bad. I know that heaven is weeping right now, but let's not forget Psalm 22 that says, I feel forsaken, but I know that I'm not and God will show up and do what he said that he would do. Then in his state of dehydration, he uh, said that he was thirsty. And you, you have to go back and watch it last week. There's, that seems like a very like rudimentary statement, but there's maybe a lot more going on there. And then he, we get to the sixth statement today. And some think that him, him saying, I thirst, so that he could take a drink, was to kind of reinvigorate the old vocal cords because this next statement was so significant. Maybe... Maybe he was like, hey, I need a little, a little, a little touch of something because you need to hear this one for sure. So let's look at John 28. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the, spout of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it is finished, three, three words in English, uh, but Jesus would have spoken one, one word. Uh, and that word is uh, tetelestai. For those who like to write things down correctly, T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I, Tetelestai. In researching this week, I kept coming across that word and just so much about that one word and how significant it is and how much is loaded into that one word. And so whether we're thinking in terms of Tetelestai or we're thinking in terms of it is finished, this might be the most powerful Bible verse in the Bible. It's a big statement, isn't it? Something, uh, something that we need to keep in mind through the course of the next few minutes as I'm teaching is the fact that the tense that he uses, like the, like, remember, like, remember English class? Remember English class? You had to do like verb tenses and that kind of stuff. If you're going to study Greek, it's like, that's like the most important thing about studying Greek is all the different tenses. The way that Jesus uses this word is, it has two very important things. It speaks to something that happens in a moment. Like in linear time, this is like a moment in time where it is finished. Like in this moment, it is finished. And that tense also it means like it's finished and it's going to remain finished forever. Like there's no undoing the finishedness of this, completion of this. And so that alone is like, man, that's that'll preach right there. But you're not getting off that easy. I do have more points. 
Because this word turns out was, a, was commonly used in, uh, in like normal everyday life uh, in some ways that I believe casts a lot of light on what's happening in the moment. There are a few different things I came across. Let me tell you the three main ones that I think inform what's happening here. Tetelestai is a used first, uh, the, one of the, the most common use of it is in regard to paying off your like debts. So if you, um, if you owed someone a debt and you paid the debt in full, they would give you a paper receipt just like we, just like we do now. And that receipt would have stamped on it the word tetelestai, paid in full. There are places that still, still do that, right, where it's like it's paid. Um, like you get an invoice and it's marked paid. And you keep that for your records in case you ever have to prove the fact that like, this debt has been settled. And that's exactly what it is. It's an accounting term. Um, it was used very, very commonly in, in those kinds of things. And that would hold up in court. Like if, if you're, the person that you're indebted to ever claimed that you did not pay it, you could produce that in court. And that was like proof of the fact that you're no longer responsible for that debt. Now, we're all very familiar with debt. We're Americans, right? It's how we live. And that, the usefulness of that is, is I think, something that's easy to, to jump on board with because we are familiar with credit card debt. We're familiar with uh, car, uh, like car notes. And, sorry, I forgot the word. Mortgages. We're familiar with student loans. Anyone still paying those things? So, like, we understand financial debt. We understand uh, some in the room know the beauty of paying off that last note, paying off that student loan, whatever it is. Uh, you know the joy of getting that, like whatever form they give it to you, something that says you are paid in full, you are debt-free in this regard. We also are familiar with how, like on a much deeper and more important level, how sin creates debts between us. So if I sin against you, there is an indebtedness that occurs very naturally. You know, If I lie to you, if I gossip about you, if I take out my anger on you, if whatever it may be, if I sin against you, there is this debt that is created. And that's even Jesus in trying to teach about forgiveness. He jumps to financial debt, but what he's really talking about is that's what happens is we sin against each other and then there's a debt and what we want to do is to, I want to, you want to make me pay for what I did to you. That that's how we have been taught to deal with our debts. And if, for more on forgiveness, go listen to week one of this series. But what really is happening though in the moment, even though I'm sinning against you and there's an indebtedness that's created, all sin is ultimately against God. Because even if I'm sinning against you, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, God, I don't care that I'm made in your image and that this other person is made in your image, I don't really care about that. I'm going to sin against them. I don't really care what you've told us about how to treat one another. I don't care what you've told us about what is, what is like good and right. I don't care about truth. I don't care about you being, I don't care about lordship. I don't care about you being the king. I don't care about the kingdom of God. I'm going to be the king in this situation over my little kingdom and I'm going to sin against this person and I don't really care what you think. 
That's at the root of every sin that I commit against you or you commit against me or we commit against each other. It's all really at the bottom, it's against the Lord. That's what David says in Psalm 51. Against, this is verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Even though he's processing his sin against Bathsheba and her husband and that whole like bizarre situation, he's saying, but ultimately it's against you, God, that I have sinned. There's, an, there's a debt that's there. Paul says it this way, Romans 6.23, the first part of verse 23, the wages of sin is death. So if you have a job and you make twelve fifty an hour and you work certain number of hours and you go and your boss pays you that, that's the, that's the wages of the job. Paul says, well, the wages of sin is that is, it has brought death. And so when I have sinned against God, the wages of that, I, what I have earned that day is my own death. And that is the... That's the problem. I heard someone say it this week. Is like the problem isn't that we that we were sinners. The problem is that we were dead. Because dead people can't do anything about their deadness. I've been trying to figure out that out for a long time. What do we do about our deadness? Well, you stay dead. That's what you do. Death is this permanent thing. And so God says, yeah, that's the debt, is that you are dead, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses, and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Like, that's very clearly stated. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for a second. Because if we're thinking in terms of debt, like if you're in financial debt... You owe the bank money for a car or for a house or you owe the government money for having you pay for school or whatever it may be. Um, whatever that debt is, like there's a, there are all these terms. There's like how you pay it off. There's penalties if you don't, like those kinds of things. There's a schedule. There's a plan. And so God handed down a plan for this spiritual debt that we have against him. I don't have time to get into the the depths of it, but it involved the sacrifice of something pure and innocent. And there would be a transfer of your debt to this animal, this lamb, most of the time. Sometimes it would be a goat or be a pigeon. It would be other things, but lamb is kind of the, the main thing we're going for here. Your debt would be transferred to this animal, and then the animal would be sacrificed and the blood of that animal would cover your sins for a little while so look in hebrews 10 look at verse 11 every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins like the sacrifices were repeated over and over and over again so it's like you, you're, you're paying on some like debt and you're paying it off each month or each however, like you're paying what you owe at that time. 
but it's like this endless thing. Like some of you, you guys are like, remember when, before we did everything digitally, you would have a book. Remember, you guys remember the book? And you would like pay your car note that month and you would like rip out the next page and send it in. And the book was like this thick because we were in these like super long contracts and you're little by little, you're wearing that book down and you're trying to get down to the end of it. I remember I grew up at Zor Baptist. I remember when they paid off their building and they burned their note. They like get like a representative of the mortgage and they like set it on fire in the church. This is like best Sunday I've ever ever seen in my life. Like this is awesome. There's something about that. Like you're trying to work your way towards something, but Israel was like doing this repeated sacrificial system and it, but it was never permanent. You bring this offering and your sins are forgiven and you turn around and your, your kids stand there, you trip over their feet and you yell at them and you're right back where you started, you know, because the problem was on the inside, not on the outside. The system was not, it was not this, like God wasn't being cruel. He's saying, no, it, this is what it's going to take for you to realize that you're, you're dead. That's why you do what you do. It's not a behavior issue. It's a, it's a spiritual death issue. When the time was right, God's like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move away from this system. Like once you guys understand it, when the time is right, I'm going to bring in a new system. And that's what the next verse says. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus makes one sacrifice and it's like, I'm done. He sits down. Because the debt has been paid. It is finished. So tell us that. Put a stamp on it. Here's the receipt. You know? That whole thing. Look down at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering or sin because the debt is paid in full and it will remain paid in full so when he says it's finished some in the crowd would have registered that of like oh it's an accounting term i know what that's like i know what that means man i've understood it fully but some would have heard that use of the word been like oh the debt's paid He's been paying a debt. Now that alone, that says a lot. The other perspectives, I think, help fill that in a little bit more. The second common use of the word to telestai has to is about a, an acceptable sacrifice. So you had the you had the the bringing of the lambs on, on behalf of you and your family and that kind of stuff that was always happening. But then there was also uh, like a corporate sacrifice. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, they would bring a lamb to sacrifice uh, on behalf of the people. And Satellistai shows up twice in this regard. One, they bring the animal, they examine the animal, and it has to be perfect. No blemishes, no issues, no... It has to be just the, the perfect lamb. And when they found the perfect one... They would take that lamb and they would say, Tetelestai. It is, it's, our search is finished. We have found the acceptable sacrifice. 
Then the high priest would bring that animal into a very special place in the temple where nowhere else could, no one else could go. Would sacrifice the animal. And after, the, uh, after that whole procedure had happened and the, and the sacrifice had been accepted, he would come, come out and stand before the people and again he would say, to Telestai. Say, it is, it's finished. Now, he wouldn't say to Telestai because... There's a Hebrew equivalent that's also translated, it is finished. So no matter, he was obviously speak Hebrew, that's a whole like language thing. Regardless, he comes out and says, it's finished. The first time we found the acceptable sacrifice, it's finished. He emerges, we have made the sacrifice, it is finished. If you look back up just a little bit in, into chapter 9, verse 11 describes exactly this scenario. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, you, you, you have to really read from that part of chapter 9 all the way into chapter 10 to get a full, a full picture of this. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that rather than a priest finding the acceptable sacrifice, saying it is finished, going, going into the, like the holy place to make the sacrifice and coming back out and saying it is finished, and having to do that every year, Jesus has lived his entire life life basically broadcasting it is finished i am the acceptable sacrifice i am the perfect sacrifice i am sinless and he has entered into the holy place not the temple which was built with human hands he has entered into heaven and goes and stands before the father and says i am the sacrifice. Do you accept this sacrifice? And the Father has said, yes. And he has emerged back out to tell the people, it is finished. The sacrifice is accepted. Verse 26, the second half of 26 says, As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Beginning of John's gospel, there's this statement. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. From that point on, John's entire gospel is trying to help us see he's, he's the one. It's not about finding the right lamb. It's not about the right high priest. It's not about the temple. It's all been pointing forward to this moment. Every time a priest said, it is finished, we found the lamb. Every time the priest emerged and said, it is finished, the sacrifice has been accepted. It's all been forecasting to this final sacrifice that doesn't have to be repeated Ever. So when Jesus says it's finished, 
in this sense, he's saying it is finished in this moment and it will always remain finished. Let the lambs live, you know. So some would have heard that word to Telestai and thought about the debt, the accounting part of it. And some would have been like, isn't that what the, the priests say it's finished? Hmm. Third thing, the Telestai is what, that's what signaled that what you've been working on is completed. So at the end of a work day, uh, you, let's say, the, if, um, and this is where, this is a culture where the men, the men were the workers. And so let's say they've been working in the field, they've been helping build the house, whatever it is. They go to boss man at the end of the day, and they're like, hey, we, the, we, we, we built that wall, or we built that fence, or we built that house, or we built whatever it is. Uh, it's it's Tetelestai. It's finished. We did. We accomplished what you set us sent us out to accomplish today. The work is done. Also, it's a similar sense. If you have an artist who's working on a sculpture or a painting or whatever it may be, that when the the artist steps back and looks at it, and it's exactly he's exactly what he or she wants it to be, the artist would say it's finished. So tell us, die. And so what, how does this fit in with Jesus? In John 17, he said, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, ha- having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's talking to the Father. I've glorified you. I've finished the work that you sent me here to do, the work that you gave me to do. Luke 19, verse 10 Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. Luke 4, he quotes, uh, he quotes one of the prophetic words about him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There are all these places where Jesus is like, this is what I was sent here to do. This is what the Father has called me to do. I'm just here to complete the work he's entrusted to me. Uh, in this moment on the cross, it's like Jesus is going to boss man and saying, hey, it's finished. I did it. But for me, maybe it's because I'm kind of a right brain person. I love thinking of it in terms of like a masterpiece that is complete. You know, you think about songwriters and poets and um, visual artists and the painstaking work that they put into things and to finally step back and say, it's exactly what I had in my head. You know, it is finished. There are no edits. There are no adjustments. There's no... 2.0 to come out. It's finished. And when you think about that and how Jesus knew what he was here to do, and he did it. And there he is on the cross at the end of his life, 
It's like he's saying the masterpiece is completed. This masterpiece of redemption is perfect. As heaven weeps, as the disciples hide, as his mom and John watch him take his last breath, as we try to jump into those moments and we're like, how in the world is this a masterpiece that perhaps the father, son, spirit filled with tears in their eyes are going to tell us that? So maybe that day some were like, ah, the debt's paid. And others were like, the priest, it's the acceptable sacrifice. And others were like, the work is completed. The masterpiece is finished. Maybe Jesus meant all of that. Maybe there's like 60 more ways that word was used out there. I don't know. Maybe Jesus meant a lot of things in the uttering of a single word. So I was thinking about that and how probably um, in general, these are not necessarily maybe new concepts. If you've been in church for a long time, you've been around the gospel, that kind of stuff. Some, some of it may be new, maybe some different angles and stuff. If you haven't been in church a, a, around a while, like if you've, if you've never come to the point where you've told, like you've told Jesus yes to his offer of salvation, then today could be that day for you. It's just a matter of saying yes, that you believe he is who he says he is. But I was pondering about how, like, it is finished. As humans, we kind of bring up maybe a little bit of a skeptical nature to anything being truly finished because we don't really see that all the time, you know? Like, even even to take those different ideas, like, if it's if it's a debt thing... Like, debt can be sneaky sometimes, you know? Like, there are those concerns of, like, okay, so I paid this debt. You sure I really paid it? Like, what if the, what if the bank is like, oh, wait, what if we forgot about this? What if your student loans, you think that you're paid off, but you're really not? Or how about, like, when you, you think something is done, and then you, then you go to do your taxes, and the IRS is like, oh, yeah, we still need a little money from that real estate deal that you thought you sold that house. You did sell that house a little bit, but you're still like, like, hey, let's talk capital gains taxes. Like, I don't even know what that means necessarily, but I, I know. <laughs> that you think it's done, but it's not done. What, if you're thinking in terms of the priestly sacrifices, like, didn't Israel have to do this every single year? Like, What if they thought it was finished, but it, was, it just wasn't really, you know? If it's a masterpiece, we see masterpieces get messed with all the time, right? Like they go in and they, they have to touch up works of art to keep, like, to, like keep restoring them. Um, there are like these incredible things that you think are like perfect, and they keep trying to improve upon them. The Beatles album, Abbey Road, got remastered. Like, how do you mess with perfection like that, you know? Like, I mean, even George Lucas went in and messed with episode four, added a bunch of weird stuff in there. It's like, well, how would you do that? It's like, that doesn't make any sense. 
There, there is a sense in which like, even the great works and the finality of debt being paid and all these kinds of things, there's like a suspicion that something could go wrong because we keep just seeing things twist and adjust and, and loopholes here and there and people kind of pulling the rug out from under you and just the fact that our government can kind of do whatever they want all the time, you know? And does that somehow project onto the Lord in this sense? Because when you start to look at, okay, well, if it's finished, then how come I'm still kind of just messy as a person, you know? If it's finished, then why do I still struggle with this this thing that I've battled for so, so long? If it's finished, then how come I struggle to forgive it's finished why don't i have a like a deep heart for those who don't know the lord you know if it's finished why don't i love to pray or study my bible or if it's finished why do i still like withhold forgiveness even though i believe i've received so much if it's finished then how come the world looks like it looks if it's finished then what about my insecurities and my fears and my anxieties and what about my failures and what about this, 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 this. And I think that that can make us put it is finished, put tetelestai in a category of like, I hope, I want to think it is and I hope that it is, but I kind of have my doubts because my life doesn't really reflect that it is truly finished. And I think that's a problem because Jesus said it, you know? Like, this was not a, like a wimpy moment. You've seen any sort of like recreation of crucifixion and all that kind of stuff. There's always, it's like these words are kind of uttered in this like, like you would think someone at the end of their life would barely be able to say these things. But I love the thought that maybe one reason Jesus said, I thirst, is so he could get a little, like enough in there to declare it. Like maybe he yelled it. It actually says in another translation that, that, that he, he made a loud cry before he died. And most commentators think this was the loud cry, that he screamed it. And if he screamed it, that's, this is a victory declaration. This is not a like, like half-hearted kind of thing. He's not trying to do anything weird here. I think he's bringing all of these meanings of telestai all together into one big thing and just trying to be like, what, what, more do you, what more do you need? What more do you want? Perhaps it's an invitation to, to like stop getting immersed in our feelings and our circumstances and all these kinds of like all these kinds of what ifs and say hey i know all this stuff is going on but it is finished like it is finished that's how i'm going to live like perhaps like there is this like draw through these simple words to say yes i feel this way yes life looks this way the world looks this way yes 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 but I know it's done because he said it. And how do we know that it's truly finished? Well, 
In Mark 15, it says that the curtain of the temple was torn. Like the presence of God was, between the presence of God in the temple and the people, there was this curtain. It was like six inches thick, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. When Jesus died, the, the things like tore from top to bottom. In other words, like letting the spirit of God out, so to speak. And what does that tell us? It tells us that he, it's safe now. You don't have to have a barrier between you and God anymore. And if you were Jewish, there'd maybe be no greater symbol than, than that one of saying, hey, something has changed. How do we know it's finished? Well, the temple or the, the curtain was torn and on Sunday, Jesus showed up alive. And that's pretty fantastic proof that it really is finished. And he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father is interceding for us. And he sent the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, you know that's you know, King of Kings when like the, like the bass drum starts pumping like that. And like the, the church of Christ was born. That whole thing. Like all that stuff being true. All of that is proof that it really is done. We just live in this in this kind of in-between state at the time, between the first arrival of Jesus and the second arrival of Jesus. See how I tied Advent in? Amazing. We live in between those two arrivals, and there is this morphing and changing that is happening as the kingdom of God and our transformation just, it's just slow. You can't make a plant grow fast. You just, you got to do the things to make a plant grow. There are things you can do to make it grow, and there are things you can do to hinder its growth, but it's going to be slow. God has decided that that's the best thing for us, is to not jump from one state to the other, but to ease into it. And you know one of the reasons why? Because a world full of people who don't know that, who don't know this, He's like, I'm going to give you a lot of time to bring that word to them because they need to know. And close with this. There's a fourth thing I came across about Tetelestai and how it's used. Tetelestai signals the beginning of a whole new era. If you take those other meanings, the financial one, the sacrifice one and the masterpiece being finished you think about like what a game changer those things can be like if, when you pay off a debt it changes things it's like you got a raise you know some of you will know what that's like one day when you pay a debt it's a whole new era for you financially when that sacrifice was accepted it was a whole new era for them there was a, a a point of relationship with God that was new for them, and they they could could have lived differently. There, the Beatles' Abbey Road changed the world, and so did Star Wars Episode Four, the original one, and so did all these works of art, all these masterpieces. They have changed us. They brought beauty to a, a ugly world, and. It's the start of a new era. And so when Jesus is saying is finished, he's also saying, hey, everything is different now. Now there is an era where the life you've always wanted is possible for you. Now is an era where there is no debt. You do not have to earn your way to God anymore. 
Now is an, is an era that started where holiness and transformation can be how you live your life. It's cultivated in you. It's a new era where you don't have to question God's goodness or his love or his care because it is finished. It's an era where we're learning how to live on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus told us to pray that and to pursue that and to chase that down because that's now possible for us in this new era where we're living, where faith can be stronger than sight. It can be. Faith can be stronger than our feelings and our circumstances and whatever is on the news today. An era where you can feel forsaken, but you can know that you are not. If you look at Hebrews 10, look at verse 19. After all that talk about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, look at what the author of Hebrews says. And here's, here's what the, here is how this changes your life. This is the last thing I'll, last thing I'll say. This is what these verses, these are, these, this is your life. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the outworking of that new era that has begun. The fact that it is finished means like this is the hope. This, this is life together for you and for me. That confidence and that full assurance of faith like that, that can become like just the mode that we operate in. Jesus has made all this possible because he did the work. He completed what he came here to do. And I don't know what that makes you want to do. But if it makes you want to sing or pray or receive communion, I have good news for you. We're about to do all those things. <laughs> that perhaps receiving the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, like, having, like taking that into your body and having someone say those words over you, perhaps that's the exact step of obedience you need to take. And maybe you didn't come from a background where, we, where you practiced that in this way, every single week, that kind of thing, that's fine. You might just need to push yourself out of the tradition that you come from a little bit. But it's just an option. Don't feel obligated to do that. It, may, it might make you want to sing. It may make you want to come and pray. It may make you, I don't know what it may, maybe you want to journal. I don't know. It's your thing. But as the people of God gathered together under this, like, under the words, it is finished. I believe that God's like inviting us to live as though that is true. It is true. But I think in order to not be a skeptic about it, I think we have to make, a, make some choices and to have that full assurance of faith like I just read about. And so I hope that you sense God like, call, like drawing you, calling you into uh, obedient steps. And we're going to sing and pray and just spend a few moments together processing that uh, on a different level. So let's stand together.
God, I'm grateful to you um, for so, so much. I know that there's probably a lot in this room who have heard those words, it is finished for a long time. And I believe that we'll never we'll never get to the like the true one hundred percent understanding of what that means, uh, this side of heaven. But I pray that we would keep learning. You know, that we would keep coming to you to be taught and to walk in like the reality of what you have done for us. And so would you help us to push push past any sort of skepticism or any sort of tendency to feel like we have to earn something or convince you of something that we push away from any fear that you're going to change your mind or you're going to undo it or that we're going to undo it because sometimes we just make really poor choices that you've said it's done and it's going to remain completed you're not a god who breaks promises or uh, tries to pull a fast one on your kids So as we sing and pray and receive communion and just respond to you this morning, I pray that you would help us uh, to do so in spirit and in truth, that you would be pleased by your sons and your daughters uh, wanting to say yes to you above our feelings and circumstances and above sight, that we would continue to strive for faith. We love you and we thank you.